I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Rosie. Come on, dog. Oh, fly past. There she goes, doing her best, no doubt, to meet up with one of the ticks from Thetford Forest, about half an hour away from us here in Norfolk, that is, according to newspaper reports this week, carrying a virus that could potentially lead to fatal brain diseases. I'll tell you, between uh, fatal brain disease ticks and politics, I wouldn't mind if I never saw another tick again. Okay. How you doing, listeners? Adam Buxton here. Welcome to podcast number 107. I'm recording this intro link on a very beautiful day out here in the countryside, walking along a farm track. And, I mean, it is beautiful right now. The clouds are gathering and it is threatening to get unbeautiful this weekend. But hey, let's enjoy the sunshine while it lasts. It's cold though. Got me puffer puffer jacket. And it's going to be gloves weather pretty soon. Uh, In fact, it's already gloves weather, really. Glove chat. But look, let me tell you about my guest this week. It's British actor, comedian. All right. Partridge, actor, comedian, and writer, Guz Khan. I first became aware of Guz when I saw one of his viral videos a few years ago and thought, ha, he's funny. And then I didn't really keep track of what he was up to until I talked to Charlie Brooker on the podcast last year, 2018, and he was recommending Man Like Mobeen which I hadn't seen at that point, but I watched it and enjoyed it, got in touch with Guz, and now finally here he is on this podcast. Here's some Guz facts for you. Guz, currently aged 33, started posting short videos as his character Mobin, who, like him, is a streetwise Muslim man from the West Midlands. He started doing that around 2015, while he was still a teacher of, according to Guz, history, geography, RE, any classes that required people not to stab each other. When several Mobin videos, some of which featured his lifelong friend and collaborator, Lumbu, went viral, Guz came to the attention of TV comedy producers in the UK. Just a couple of years later, in 2017, the first four episodes of Man Like Mobin aired on BBC Three and featured Guz's character living in Small Heath, Birmingham, doing his best to be an upstanding member of the community and looking after his younger sister, played by Dwa Kareem, while trying to escape a criminal past and avoid being landed in more trouble by his friends, played by Tez Ilyas and Tolu Ogunmefun. A third series of Man Like Mobin is, as I speak, in production and due to air early next year, 2020. 
In the meantime, Guz has been having a busy time, especially this year, acting opposite Idris Elba in the Netflix comedy drama Turn Up Charlie. Guz was in Sky TV's drama Curfew with Sean Bean and Billy Zane. And he was in Mindy Kaling's Hulu miniseries based on the Richard Curtis film Four Weddings and a Funeral. Guz also does, he does, Guz does, live stand-up comedy. And as well as several appearances on Live at the Apollo, earlier this year, 2019, he went on a sold-out national tour called Persons of Interest alongside Kuwait-born American comic Mohammed Amr. My conversation with Guz was recorded at the King's Cross comedy venue 2 North Down. Thanks once again to the kind people at 2 North Down for letting us record there one afternoon in September of this year when Guz was visiting London with his friend Lumbu, who was off doing something very exciting while we were recording. You'll find out what Lumbu was doing towards the end of our conversation, which meandered from the topic of getting excused from class, teaching tips, overthinking things, parenthood, the story of the viral videos that began Guz's career, and at the very end... I give him an inappropriate gift. Back after that conversation for a small waffle slice, but right now with the magnificently affable Guz Khan. Here we go. Down comedy venue in King's Cross, and it's a great intimate venue, but it distinguishes itself by having two toilets either side of the stage, so that if anyone from the audience wishes to go to the lab, they have to do so in front of everyone in the audience. And it's this strange thing of the person on stage and the audience knowing that there's a person right there <laughs> to the left or right of the stage doing their stuff in Take the middle me. of the show. Massive I don't let people go to the toilet in my shows. Bro. Do you not? No. <laughs> but you go, sit down. Just that tone of voice seems to really click people into action, bro. Where do you think you're going? Sit down. Oh, sorry, mate. Sorry, I allowed it. <laughs> they might have chronic illness, but you're sitting down. You're going to listen. <laughs> Are you tough with your audiences? Yeah, it's fun. Like, I, I, always, <laughs> I always try and do it with like a, a little, little tongue-in-cheek, but... Like, in terms of controlling a room of people, I can never quite get my head out of a teaching space. Thank you. Which kind of set things up so beautifully for right, how I stumbled course. into this. Of course. So I want to go to the toilet. You went five minutes ago. Nah, sir, because I've got this chronic, chronic problem. What's that? <laughs> it's a chronic itis. Shut up, sit down. Time for your bullshit. Sit down, Tyrese. You know what I mean? So don't let anybody off the hook, bro. <laughs> but what I did used to do more than that was hyperventilate until I felt faint. And then I would have a legitimate, like I would create a legitimate physical situation that I could excuse myself for. I'm feeling, excuse me, sir. I'm feeling faint. I think I'm going to pass out. 
And I genuinely was, because I'd been hyperventilating. Could, did, did that work with your teachers? Yeah. What would you do? If, if, if a child was clearly faint, all the colour had drained from their cheeks, and they're about to faint, you don't want to take a chance they're going to keel over and... I mean, my first response, I believe in my head, would have been, stop hyperventilating, motherfucker, just sit down, all right? That's <laughs> enough of that. We'll take a risk, come on in. The whole class will see this. Five minutes off your work, let's go, let's have a look. Are you going to hyperventilate? Go on in. Find out if it's a real one or not. And if they do KO, bro, the nurse was... <laughs> the school nurse wasn't far from me, so she could rectify the situation. Are you allowed to take those kind of chances in the modern school environment, though? Yeah, probably not. But you know, the thing is, like, there are so many red tapes. There are so many pointers that, as a, as a teacher, as an educator, you have to go through. Yeah. That if you tried to do all of them properly in one day, per regulation, bro, you would get nothing done. It would be chaos. Like... It's one of the biggest things that when I was sat there marking books just like four and a bit years ago and I was thinking, shit, man, I love these kids, but this job's going to kill me because people didn't care about how you're moving these kids on emotionally, how they're improving as human beings. It's all like, come on, come on. Is David going to get his A to C? I felt like an imposter there as well. Did you? Why? Because like... Because you weren't a perfect uh, example of a human being yourself? Yeah, well, yeah. Obviously, bro, that, that was always playing play my case. But then, like, it felt like the school was split. So, like, the teaching cohort was full auntie and uncle vibe, yeah? Mm-hmm. Who had still been there since I was a kid. Do you know what I mean? Who used to roll TVs into a room. Yeah. And you used to be able to change the channels with the watch remote <laughs> on your hand, yeah? You used to, used to be able to do all their manoeuvres. So, it felt like this. Who'd throw the blackboard rubber yeah, at people's heads. Exactly, yeah. bro. That, that, that gang... And then there was a, a brand new gang. And my favourite gang was, I loved them in the end, but there's this, there's this thing called Teach First. Uh, and the government thought it was a great idea to take some of the brightest minds in the country with no teacher training whatsoever, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, blah, 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 mm-hmm. and throw them into a modern academy. Um, they almost threw themselves out of windows on a regular basis. The logic being, they thought, oh, well, they're clever people, they'll adapt. Brightest minds yeah, yeah. will change the minds of our children. Like, yo, that shit didn't pan out very well, son, especially for the first three terms, because the kids, they're ruthless. They don't care if you're from Oxford or Cambridge or what knowledge you can impart. You have to make an impression on them first as a human, you know? Yes. And then everything else comes after that. Why did you feel out of place? So my my mom, not a mainstream teaching background, but had a teaching-ish background. And she was kind of like a teacher at the end. So like where her and my sister's group, super tough place in Coventry called Hillfields, she was always helping to educate other aunties, other uncles. Like, there's this basic thing where we're from, yeah, which is if you can't read English, there's always one lady that you take all of your mail to. So my mum was like, it's a shit job, but i got to do it for free. So she had, she had piles of mail from all different types of neighbours, like, read this for me, explain this for me. So like, I, was, I was used to that vibe in the house from an early age of just people I'd, maybe you've never even seen before, but don't worry, Zena will read the letters to us. And so she was kind of educating them on content of the letter, what this means, next steps. And she was really good at it. And she did it from her, from her heart. My sisters then ended up going into teaching. They're a bit shit as well, but like, it's fine. Um, they, they went into teaching, doing their thing. But it wasn't, my, it wasn't my dream like to be a teacher or impart knowledge. I initially was like, yo, man, this, this life isn't quite planning out how I, how I thought it would. I do have a degree. Mm-hmm. So if I bang out this PGC, that definitely means six weeks holiday per year. And that's a good chunk of holiday. For a job, for a career opportunity. But then I ended up falling in love with it, bro. So I always felt a little bit like, you know, there are some teachers who blag it like, I was born 
to be a teacher. Yeah. I wanted to... No, you did not at three years old when you were playing with your Barbies and your Kens want to be a teacher. That's a, that's a lot. I don't even believe that. So I always felt like I was kind of a bit of a fraud in that sense. How old were you when you did your degree then? Uh, it was meant to be a three-year degree. turned into a five-year degree. There was two years of a lot of fun. And then so I finally buckled down. <laughs> and managed, <laughs> managed to get a, a 2-1 in criminology and law. And then I was kind of still mocking around. I kind of did the degree because mum was like, look, you can do what you want. I can't stop you doing what you want. Your cousins are up to this and you're up to this. But education is fundamental. That's why we came to this country, to ensure that you, her, herself personally, yeah. and, and me and my sisters get a quality of education. So I did that and I kind of did that for her. So I did it. I felt validated. And then after that, it's like, OK, what is next? Am I going to end up... Like the man then, or am I gonna? I'm gonna try something different here, and then you know you go through different phases of maturity and. What's man then? What ads? Okay, so um, close friends. Oh, okay. I mean, I've heard that before, but I don't really like when you said it just then. I was like, I don't know what that means <laughs> in context. So like, so like, who's your, who, who are your who are your best two friends in the world? Um, Garth Jennings and Danny Richards. Garth and Danny Mandem. Yes. Yeah? You should set up a WhatsApp group just and initiate that into your lexicon, bro. Mandem, let's do this. Where does that come from, then? It might be Patois. Is it short for something like Mandem are oh, really nice? <laughs> Mandem are so nice. <laughs> Them both. Mandem offer me great spiritual and social respite. No, like, bro, I, I don't even know. It just it came and it became popular. Comedically, it's been used a lot. I noticed that. And so I'm always quite wary of where certain terminologies and what kind of vernacular where it's being used so because, because for some people mandem is a actual word utilized to describe this is my social circle yeah this is my mandem anyway what you want about social circle yeah we ain't standing in no fucking circle bro what are you talking about <laughs> so like it's, it's a real term for real people so if it's being used kindly yeah. Um, I don't mind, but I think there's some people who utilise terms. Just bit of appropriation going a on. Bit of, a bit of appropriation. Well, actually. that always happens. It's weird with, with those kinds of things because it often happens with kind of white middle class people will ironically reference something that's definitely outside of their culture. Happens a lot with hip hop, with white boys who used to listen to hip hop back in the day. Yeah. And so it would start out that they were doing it sort of ironically. Some of them weren't. Some yep. of them genuinely thought that they were from Harlem and <laughs> that they were rapping people. Um, but other people would sort of ironically use a few phrases here and there. Then they don't think about it so much and then it's not ironic anymore. Well, a phrase like bruv, you know. Yeah. Harry Hill would say bruv and it would always make me laugh because it was obvious that, you know, it was totally outside of his sphere yeah. socially. And that's why he was saying it because it was funny. But then, after a while, it just seems completely natural, and it's like, yeah, everyone can say bruv. You know, like the term bruv, when I'm working on sets, it feels like everybody from the transport department was initially from the East End. Like, probably, you know, old school, white fellas. Yeah. And bruv rolls off their tongue very naturally. Is right, it bruv? Yeah, yeah, bruv. you're right. Bruv, you know what I mean, bruv? Bruv comes yeah. off fucking about, bruv. Chelsea, we ain't racist, mate. A little bit, but no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Every single transport conversation takes place in a 45-minute journey. Now, we ain't racist, Guzzy. Come on, come on. Um, but, yeah, it fits in very naturally, doesn't it? Yeah, these phrases, though, they, yeah, they weave around, don't they? It's not always the... It, it's very seldom the preserve of one yeah. culture. Yeah. And I'm, I suppose, bro, for me, we always had a... Where we grew up in my own personal family and the area that we grew up in, everybody was kind of 
mixed. It was Irish immigrant families, it was Caribbean families, South Asian families, and then the whole spectrum of that is broad-ranging Bangladeshi, Indian, Pakistani, all with their own beef. It wasn't odd. You know, like when, like now I meet people who are kind of like overly sensitive to, um, is it, is it right if I, if I say that? I'm like, well, say it, innit? And yeah. if someone tweets you, don't tweet it again. You know what I mean? See how it pans out. But we, we were kind of mixed from an early age and um, even in my own personal family. You know, I talked about this on stage yesterday because it just occurred to me. It's like half of my family is uh, white Irish mm-hmm. and half Pakistani. So my uncles ended up here in like late 60s, probably early 70s, sent to work. And somehow, against all odds, they managed to pull their wives. Um, to give you some perspective ads, one of my uncles looked like that brother out of Short Circuit. <laughs> you know, Johnny's bleeding. It feels like he'd styled his haircut on Johnny's bleeding. And somehow he managed to pull Auntie Teresa. I'll never get it. But like for me in our, in our family, then there was a clash of, sometimes it was a clash actually of cultures and religious ideologies and, and where you're from. So for, for us kind of mixing up languages and vernaculars, it was always natural. You know what I mean? Mm. We never really stressed about it. Yeah. It's nice. I like it. Yeah. That was interesting and a really great ball. To go back to teaching though, which you were doing five years ago. Yeah. So paint us a picture of what you would have been up to five or six years ago. Like on a daily basis, it would have been trying to get around lesson planning, marking, moderation. Like that is the stuff that I felt weighed me down so much. I know it's important, right? However, it felt like there was a whole host of teachers who were like getting the kids in their class, knowing them by name because of the seating plan, ensuring everything was tick, 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 and then off you go. And like, first of all, it's bare effort, bro, to do these lesson plans and do this marking, <laughs> yeah? So I don't want to present it like I was trying to find a new moral way, but it's, it's fucking long, all right? So I was like, there's got to be a better way to see if these kids are improving educationally than just, mo- like, bro, constantly. They brought out clever ideas, which is like, depending on the colour pen that you utilise, that's the kind of marking that you should be implementing. So we had, we had green and red pen, and then like, I figured out a really good way for the children to self-moderate and self-assess is like, pass your book to your partner, they'll read it, write your question in green pen, and then they'll hand the book back and you answer it in red pen. Because uh-huh. I'd heard it from a different school, but our school wasn't doing it at the time. Turns out, bro, this changed my fucking life. I didn't have to mark books for like six months. Sometimes it was shit questions, like a deep theological question around Buddhism. It would be like, yeah, what does your mum think about KFC? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was checking. And then when senior leadership came out, I remember seeing a few books like, yo, these dickheads have messed me up here. They're asking each other about lyrics and albums and hip hop. <laughs> but, but senior leadership came around in the lesson observation. They flicked through the books. They saw all of the green and the red in quite depth. Didn't read it and said, fantastic, guys. Really good self-moderation. <laughs> Shit. This is the way forward. So my life was great for about six to eight months. Uh, and then obviously comes around to GCSE time. You really have to put the foot down. And bro, it started taking up too much of my life. You know, I mm-hmm. had three little ones at home at the time. 
And I was thinking, yo, if I do carry this on as a career, which I didn't think I was going to, but if I do, I'm going to end up spending more time with other people's kids than I do with my own. Mm-hmm. That shit. That's not what I want to do. Though it's a, it's a beautiful vocation and, you know, you're helping the next generation. I can't sacrifice my own happiness, my own family. So I was sat in a classroom and I, brought, I still remember it to this day. I was marking books and there was two kids sitting in front of me. And I was like, in my head, I was like, you got to try something else. Just nothing beyond that, but you got to try something else. And it was weird because the kids in front of me started asking me questions about things that their parents had to say. Like, so, you know, like, um, with, the, with the Taliban and them, are they man gone now? And I was in, bro, in that moment, I was thinking, that's such a basic but funny question mm-hmm. from people who don't, like, I'm their only reference point. Like, their parents are discussing with them things to ask Khan in school. It's like, oh, you're the Taliban, they're man gone. It's all about ISIS now, isn't it? It's all about... And I think it... And there must be other people who think like that. And that's when the first couple of comedic videos came about. Mm. And then... And then wow, because that's intense as a parent when your children start asking those questions. And you have to make a decision like, am I immediately going to Google the answers to all these <laughs> questions? Or am I going to make something up so that they'll think I've got all the answers? Bro, I don't know. Like, I suppose you could be in another classroom in the country with another teacher who would be like, that's entirely inappropriate. But I taught in a majority working class white British school mm-hmm. who... When I walked through the corridors on the first day, I think there was one other South Asian teacher there, one other Caribbean teacher. Big up Miss Library all day, every day. So, like, the, school, the, the teaching cohort, the, the, the kids in the school, was very white. And initially, I was, like, oh, super sensitive. Like, should they be asking these things? But when you look a kid in the eyes, you can tell if they're chatting shit, if they're trying it with you, or if they are genuinely interested. Mm-hmm. And the majority of the time, ads. They were genuinely interested. So like, well, going, why you man want to kill us? And the way they were asking the question, it wasn't like, oh my God, that's entirely inappropriate. Let's sit down and have a chat about it. It was like, right, is that what you think? Come on, let's, let's talk about it. Uh-huh. Do you get what I mean, bro? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like kids' eyes don't lie. Have you got little ones? Yeah, I do, yeah. So bro, you know when they're oh, my, pulling they, your they, leg. Their eyes do lie though, my... Explain to me what do you mean, bro? <laughs> I'm joking. No, but um, <laughs> occasionally, occasionally, just most of the time, you can't see the eyes because they're just staring at the floor. Okay, that's a dead giveaway, bro. That's a dead giveaway that the Italian porkies. Like, if they were looking at their feet, like, yo, sir, yeah, you like Bin Laden and that, yeah, that'd be like you're taking a piss. But like, when they're looking at you dead in the eyes, yeah, it's a, it feels like a genuine question. Oh, I dream of eye contact. Yeah. <laughs> It would be great. No, one of, one of my uh, sons is going through a phase where he's strongly anti-eye contact. Oh my, how old is he? He's 15. Okay. I mean, yeah, to be expected. Sometimes. How old are yours? Mine are eight, six and four. Right, okay. So They're well, still nice. Yeah, bro, really nice, really nice. And we've got one more on the way. Have so you? Busy house, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you not been listening to Prince Harry? <laughs> You're not allowed. <laughs> Listen, bro, you know, like, you know, like, family planning, yeah? Yeah. I still don't, I'm not entirely sure what that is now. <laughs> I know, yeah, the idea of, well, probably this is going to show my ignorance and uh, privilege, but family planning, I don't know, uh, yeah, where did it happen, how did it happen, who, the idea was that a young couple who thought they were going to spend the rest of their lives together would go off to the family planning clinic 
I don't know, and sit down and go, we're planning to have children. How many do you think we should have? I don't know. What were they supposed to do? I suppose teaching the first environment that I was really full-scale in a place where I was surrounded by people that I didn't grow up in who weren't in my social circles. Well, family planning, you could get birth control. That would, oh, be, that okay. would be one thing, right? Yeah. So the plan would be to not have a family. Okay. <laughs> that's, the, that's the plan. Okay, yeah. Okay, bro. I mean, yeah, that's, you fundamentally explained the basis of it there. But I just, in my head, like you just said, how you summarized it was what I thought it was. People right. would sit down and say, but next I think, 20 years holds this. I'm like, yeah, but maybe fuck? there was an element of that as well. I mean, in a way, it sort of makes sense. In a way, it's the kind of thing that I've often thought would be quite a good idea and I wish that I'd done it. I wish that I'd sat down and had some of the realities of parenthood explained to me in a more detailed way. I mean, you're talking about feeling like a fraud as a teacher. Do you ever feel like a fraud as a father? I do. Why? Why? I'll I'll, I'll, I'll say, nah, no, but then I want to hear why you feel like a fraud. (sighs) Because... I feel so often like I'm just making it up in so many areas of my life and I feel as if my children imagine that I know what's going on way more than I do. And I feel like a bad example a lot of the time. What, of a a dad? I, I just spend a lot of my time feeling guilty every time I read the news and I see what's going on in the world. And these days when you go on social media and you see how passionate people are about all sorts of things and their ideas about how we should be changing our behavior and improving the world, etc. And, you, you know, you do your best to think about those and incorporate those into your life, but not all of them. You're not across everything. You can't be. So I just find myself thinking, oh, man. I shouldn't be bringing up children. I'm, I'm just a terrible person. Bro, you're stressing me out. <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> I'm 33 now. I have not analysed it anywhere near I think that it's that. part of a midlife crisis. Yeah, don't be having midlife crisis. Bro, just relax <laughs> with your fucking midlife crisis. You're going to cause me an onset of a midlife crisis early with all these deep questions. You have the fucking kids. If they're still alive by the end of the day and they're having fun, you achieve, brother, okay? It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like, for me, I suppose, okay, if I'm real, if I really analyse it, maybe one thing I was worried about is, what's a dad? Because my dad passed away when I was very young. Right, okay. How so old I, were you? Uh, I was three. Oh, man. So I was raised by... Do you even remember him? I remember, okay, there's one thing I remember, right? And I thought for a long, long time it was in my head until my sister confirmed it, which was I remember putting a what's it between my toes and feeding him a what's it between my toes and I just remember like I can't remember but a face that was heavily unimpressed but then I smushed <laughs> it into his beard so that is <laughs> I remember that this was confirmed by my sister probably because my dad called me a dickhead whatever he, he was a he was a good dude uh, but yeah don't remember a great deal so I just I grew up on the stories of of what he was like mm-hmm. um, but then I was raised by three very strong assertive South Asian women. Yeah. Which who, look... And they were your... Who? Mom and, yep. and two older sisters. Okay. So they're... Like, my sisters are 10 and 11 years older than me. So it was, it was, it was a big gap um, in terms of when I was six, they would have been, like, in the heyday of their teens. But my mom's like, yo, I'm out here busting my ass doing this work. So you two are going to stay home and make sure your brother's not fucking up the house, right? Yeah. I had, I had an issue. I used to do things like... Pissing VCRs and that it was fucked up. Like, why did you piss in VCRs? Bro, are you are you asking me questions I don't really have the answer to? Okay, is that a top loader or a front loader? All I remember is just 
I was obsessed with the flap for a while. Sure. And then my sister goes, my nappy was off in several incidences, but I was playing with the flap. So I planned it in my head, hadn't I? You were shagging the VCR. I was, <laughs> I was shagging. I was shagging the VCR at four years old. I was ahead of the game, brother. You hear that man, then? Yeah? Your boy was ahead of the game. I was fucking VCR at four years old. You ain't got shit on me. <laughs> so, like, I used to get, I used to get myself into a lot of bother apparently as a, as, a, as a young kid and then never really much changed but going back to the father thing I always wondered oh shit is there something I've really missed out on here mm-hmm. had uncles some of them were quite traditional working class South Asian uncles they say hello a couple of times a week <laughs> <laughs> hello dad hello I'm off to work <laughs> like, really good strong relationships <laughs> with their children um, but then I think I don't really overanalyze anything, you know. Yeah, well, that's a good thing. You know? I mean, I blame Malcolm Gladwell. Do you know who I mean by Malcolm Gladwell? No, explain to me. Go on. He wrote a book called The Tipping Point uh-huh. back in the day. He is a, a titan of popular psychological, sociological books. So The Tipping Point, which made his name, was all about, and I think it was end of the 90s that it came out, something like that. It was all about how little things have great effects, kind of almost butterfly effect type thing, you know? Mm. The idea of, well, what we now call viral culture, really. You know, huge, great social movements have their origins in very small ideas Mm. and trends. And so he analysed, he had various case studies about how certain things spread from, like, a little local trend to becoming a global phenomenon in things like fashion and art and... All sorts of things, and some quite depressing things as well. He analysed how suicide became an epidemic on, on an island where a few teenagers took their lives, and then suddenly it became kind of a weird, macabre trend wow. for this, you know, even something like wow. taking your own life can become a viral phenomenon. Anyway, it's really a great book, and it captured people's imaginations. He's a controversial figure in some ways because he appropriates a lot of scientific literature and twists yeah. it to his own narratives in various ways. But I do find his books very readable. But the problem is that he was one of the pioneers of that kind of way of thinking about the world. Mm-hmm. After that, you got Freakonomics, a book that was uh, on similar territory and, and was also very popular. And now this just loads. Pretty much every TED talk you see is influenced in some way by those kinds of books by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. By that idea of thinking about the world in microscopic terms, like Mm -hmm. macroscopic, whatever the right word is, analyzing the tiny things. I suppose that's that whole culture of thinking about microaggressions and things like that. Yeah. Owes something to that way of thinking, you know, analyzing the small things that we do that actually have big effects and being aware of those things. Would you say, like, in terms of those thought processes right there, is that something that you had from an early age, that super analytical way of looking at things, or is it something you develop later on? Not really. I mean, I think... I remember when we... Sorry, this is now turned into uh, (laughs) a... Well, this is a freewheeling conversation. Freewheel, baby. Um, I used to do a TV show back in the day on Channel 4 called The Adam and Joe Show with Joe Cornish. So a lot of that show was looking at little details of popular culture. And the guy that commissioned it at Channel 4, a guy called Peter Grimsdale, when we were trying to figure out what to do, he would always say, I think this show is all about minutiae. 
And we were like, what's minutiae? We had to look it up. Yeah. And <laughs> so we started thinking that way about things like that when we were doing our TV show. And thereafter, I was always attracted to that kind of way of thinking and thought it was interesting and funny. Okay. But then I have felt recently that it's kind of led me down a rabbit hole a few times mm. that's a bit dark and scary and I want to get out of because it's almost paralyzing. Mm. If you think about inherited ideas about feminism or racism mm. or any of these big topics that people are now discussing and thinking much harder about, if you think about how different things are than they were just five years ago, that's because people are thinking about them in a really heavily analytical mm. micro way a lot of the time. And you see people getting in rows on social media because people are saying, all right, you didn't think about what you just said, but if we analyze it, we can see that there's a lot of patriarchal privilege at play in some of your word choices there. Yeah. And those people are like, what? Fuck off. I didn't, yeah, I'm not racist. I'm not, I don't hate yeah, women. Yeah, 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 yeah. But if you do pass and analyze a lot of the things they're saying, you can make a case, well, actually, there's this, and that kind of refers to that bit of white privilege or that bit of patriarchal. You know, of course, there's so much merit to that, and it's yeah. fundamental that we analyze things in that way. But I just think right there, listening to the depth and complexity of how you explain that, right? And then I think about the school that I taught at mm -hmm. and the parents who ended up really getting on with me. If we try to break that analysis down for them, they're going to say, excuse me, mate, can you fuck off? I'll stay the way I am. <laughs> Bro, so like, for me, I'm thinking like real world terms. I feel like we're heading toward times where if you say something that somebody feels untoward today on Twitter mm -hmm. and that gets enough retweets, that's... That's a wrap for you, bro, in certain circles. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a wrap for you. And I just, like you said, it's, it's all so dangerous and it worries me because I think the, the way that people behave on social media, as you were saying, definitely impacts in real life. Oh, I, I better not ever ask somebody who wears a face veil that question. It's like, yo, motherfucker, ask. Talk to each other. Interact. That is what will... Well, I hope that's what will change the game. I might yeah, be because shit. There's, I don't know. there's a way, you know, people in real life, part of interaction in a physical space is reading how people are saying things. Yeah. To you. You know even a mean? tone, bro. Even a tone of voice. Like if you were stood in a dark room and we couldn't see each other, a tone of voice allows you to judge and gauge and then you can pitch something back, right? Yeah. Then when you add seeing somebody face-to-face -face and then maybe shaking a hand or firms and a high-five, whatever the fuck it is. Bro, these things break down the way we think so much more easily than, here's my 19,000-page report on the minutia of race. <laughs> I think, I don't know, yeah. I might be talking shit. I haven't finished that report yet. <laughs> I'm getting my son to help me with it. <laughs> it's bad I think myself into a corner and you know it's all done for the best reasons and you as I say I'm not putting down the idea of wanting to think hard about these things that should be not thought about definitely. you know because definitely a lot of them haven't been thought about mm. nearly enough but man it is uh, it is tricky sometimes <laughs> <laughs>
Oh wow, that's an amazing point. I never considered that point till now. You're so deep and you made me think. And now I'm gonna change my life somehow. Thank you very much for your wonderful, deep and amazing point. Your deep and amazing point. Your deep and amazing point. So while you were teaching, yeah. in your free time, starting to make videos. I was, yeah. And I want to say this as a caveat, because a lot of people, every single day, I don't know what the numbers are, but in terms of YouTube uploads and Instagram uploads, like, you can't even comprehend the amount of hours worth of content that's being uploaded every yeah. day, right? Um, and people are like, yeah, because you just banged it out and did it. Like, though I tell you that I don't overanalyze things and look back at it, I did have a moment the other day when I was uh, chatting to Dino, my missus, and she was like, yo, imagine if that had gone different. You would have fucked it, innit? And I was like, yes, Dino, I would have. Because, like, I was a teacher. I finally got a stable job, which if I'd have carried on doing it the way I was, actually, maybe I would have ended up in pastoral care and that would have been sick. Uh, and I would have loved that as a long-term career. So there's a solid long-term career for this working-class geezer. And I put that all on the line, bro, because... I didn't overthink the fact that, oh, what if this doesn't work? So whilst I was teaching, I put the first video out. And, and, that, was, and, what, and what was in that video? Bro, I think, I think the content of that video was something about a, an uncle of mine who used to wear glasses with no lenses in it. So I, <laughs> I, re, I recreated that moment and I put it out on Facebook. And it wasn't just random. It was, it was like after pressure of, yo, because you've been funny since we were kids. You've been ripping people since we were kids. That's the way we, we grew up. But right, you should go and try comedy. But to comprehend going into a, a small pub up in the West Midlands and doing five minutes, fuck you now, brother. I've never been into a small pub up in the West Midlands, let alone go and try and make people laugh. So completely off the radar, out of my world. Yeah. So I did that first video just for friends on like a private Facebook page and it banged. There was like loads of people like, because you dickhead always been funny friends that I hadn't spoken to in like that's how Facebook works isn't it like six seven eight years from school like fuck bro I miss common room on Thursday afternoon when you be in there taking a piss so I was like okay like forget the people that I'm with every day who think I'm funny everyone's remembering what it was like yeah. growing up as kids and how much fun we used to have then the next video that I did was based off a conversation was based off a conversation with the kids I was having in the classroom and I was thinking I've got to do something different here and Fox News ran a report about Birmingham being a Muslim-only yes. zone. They called it a no-go zone, didn't they? No-go zone. 2015 it was, yeah. Who isn't Muslim. And, and then Trump quoted that, didn't he? He did. Yeah. He did. He oh did. God. What a world we live in, bro. What a world. What a world we live in. Um, and I did a silly sketch based on a, a mate of mine who is very much like the guy who's gone on to be on television now, so Mo Bean. Um, explaining his point of view, tongue-in-cheek, taking a piss. Uh, we uploaded that, didn't think anything of it. I went to school and then, like, halfway through the morning, I was getting calls from, like, ITV News West Midlands, BBC News West Midlands, like, saw your clip, really, really funny. Can we discuss it? And, bro, everything steamrolled from there. I don't... There's so much hard work that goes in. I've, I've seen YouTubers, I've seen... People who create content, comedic content. But for me, from that first video, it's not like I was then going home every day like, what's in the news today? What's in the news today, buddy? Let's, uh, let's give it a go. It was just whenever I felt like I was able to chat shit, after a long day at school, me and my boy Lumble would jump out, grab a camera, usually on our, on our camera phone, uh, and then just put it out. And it started gaining uh, a following. Mm -hmm. And what I liked about the following years 
when I was reading comments and the vernacular was in the comments, like, okay, these are my people. When I say my people, I mean working class people from Brom, Coventry, Wolverhampton, you know what I mean? White, black, Asian. So there's like a cool little following that's going on here. This is our comedy, it felt like. Still didn't take any of it seriously uh, until it must have been like three months into doing this stuff, maybe four. Uh, I did a, a video called Pachysaurus. Um, it was a video that went so fucking viral that I was fielding calls from Indonesian media outlets. Like, and this is still me, just goods, like teaching at school, doing his daily shit. And after that clip, like, life changed. What was in that one? Essentially, me and my mate went to watch, you know the Jurassic World reboot? Yeah. And there's a scene in the movie where they're in a control room and a woman says, when she's looking straight down the barrel of a CCTV, guys, we have an issue. The, uh, the packies are out of containment. And I was like, the what? The what are out of containment? Pachylophosaurus is the dinosaur. They'd abbreviated Pachylophosaurus down to the packies are out of containment. And there was a... <laughs> There's an old dude and his wife sitting next to me, bro. And it's quite bright lights, back, like just streaming back on us from the screen. I looked at him and he went... The, the listeners won't be able to see his facial reaction. He went, what the fuck is this? So we were creasing up. There's people behind me laughing because now me and Lumber were going back and forth like, what, the, what, did, what did this bitch say in a blockbuster movie? The packies are out of container. I appreciate it. Give me my fucking money back and I want a free slushie. Like we were really stressed. Like they said, and then the, the <laughs> laughter genuinely started building around the cinema auditorium, the people behind it. You hear what she said? She got you out of containment, mate. She got you out of containment. <laughs> Finished the movie. I don't even know what fucking happened for the rest of the movie, really. And we're Googling, is there a Pachysaurus? Then we found out there was something called Pachylophosaurus. And in and amongst all this, it turns out there was a, a dinosaur discovered in Pakistan called Pachysaurus. No way. Right? So there's all kinds of misinformation. Yeah. And then I decided, look, this shit's funny. Me and my mate were still laughing at it on the <laughs> way home. And we'd bought a DSLR. Uh, I feel it was like 190 quid from Tesco or whatever, yeah. mm-hmm. acting like we know what we were doing. We were doing that shit, right? Jumped out of the car, recorded that clip, and bro, ever since that clip dropped, like within days of that, there were agents emailing to the Facebook page and blah, 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 like, hey, how long you been doing this for? We really like it. And I, I ignored everything initially because I was, they were asking me questions about, and so how do you build your material? I'm like, what the fuck do you mean? How do I build my material? We just do it. It's off the cuff, one, yeah. one take kind of thing. We're not really thinking about it. Um, and yeah, bro, that's, it, it was literally a process of maybe like four videos that got a great amount of traction. Wow. And, and there we are. The feeding frenzy. The feeding frenzy. The thing is that your stuff, you're one of those personalities that kind of feels fully formed. So uh, I remember seeing the Pachysaurus video and really laughing at it. <laughs> But it was like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be fine. You know, you, su- you see people like that every now and again, and it's like, okay, I can see this. I can see the whole package. This is great. Um, but then there's a lot of other people, and I would count myself as one of those people, who, m- who have maybe a handful of okay instincts and ideas, but actually they're going to need to do a lot of work <laughs> before they can get it anywhere near being something that will connect with with a large group of people you you said you thought that about yourself yeah yeah definitely i'm typical of a lot of kind of comedy fans and people who watch comedy a lot 
when they're young, they watch a lot of stuff on TV and they have a kind of um, slightly conflicted relationship. You love it, but you spend a lot of your time going, that's shit, I could do better than that. And okay. I know that Charlie Brooker is the same kind of person yeah. who used to have that sort of relationship with watching comedy. And you've got ideas and instincts and you're, you're like, why, why my stuff should be out there? And then when you get the opportunity to do it or when you start doing it, you realise quickly, oh, it's not that easy, is it? And it just takes ages and ages for you to hone it and get rid of the stuff that doesn't work and find the stuff that is a bit better. And, you know, I think most people are like that. And then, of course, there's loads of people who are just fucking rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I'd send shots, bro. Send it, bro. Listen, we're here. I love when people send shots. Call them out. Name some names. Yeah. I feel like you, Charlie, I'm working with my broski right now called Amir Rahman. Um, he's, he's a stand-up comedian from Australia. Super bright, super intelligent, and you guys can craft and hone brilliant comedy pieces. In my head, I feel like you lot are, are proper comedians. That's the way I feel. I feel like you lot are proper comedians. And then I feel like someone like me, I'm just doing me, right? Uh-huh. So what I had to learn quite quickly, and the thing is, bro, nobody explains to you, do they? I remember to turn up the first day when I was doing comedic acting and someone said, have you got your sides? And I'm like, what the fuck is sides now, bro? <laughs> what, what do you mean? Yeah, I've got my sides. You can see they're physically on me. What are you talking about, bro? Talk fucking English to me, sides. Turns out it's the words that the script is written on. It's the script. For, 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 yeah. for you, it's the script, right? And I'm, I'm trying to analyse and look at all these things. And, but still the thing that freaked me out most was constructing stand-up comedy mm-hmm. routines. Um, purely for the fact that I was fine when I'd grab a microphone and there would be a crowd there and I could just go off on a tangent and start ripping him, start questioning her, start ripping him back there. And it felt natural and there was a great energy in the crowd. However, what I found out quite quickly is, oh, well, now when it comes to material, oh, yeah, there's nowhere near as many laughs there, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm relying on things that I've got innately, naturally, like you said. But then what still freaks me out till today is, yo, man, I need to still learn how to create really good stand-up bits yeah um which is an art form bro you'll be able to, to confirm that it feels like so people are like oh because you did love it apollo last year you're smashing it i'm like yo bro i had like 16 minutes i did 16 minutes and then i walked off and then people are like oh my god that's unbelievable what about if you had to go on tour but like, i don't like you know already i don't think that far ahead i'm like we've got an opportunity i think it would be sick to go and do that kind of performance in front of that many people let's do it it still freaks me out. So part of me is like, yo, should I have that super over-analytical element to just stand up? Nothing else in my life, but just stand up. But then part of me is like, nah, let's just keep seeing how it goes. The advantage you have is that you're a personality that audiences like and they want to see. So mm. that is a big, big part of the puzzle. For a lot of other people, you know, they have to overcome their shyness and their awkwardness and... And that's very natural. Most yeah, people yeah. are shy and awkward, but audiences don't like that. I thought when they gave me the first four, they're going to tell me piss off anyway, after I've done the first four. So let me just talk about all the stuff that I would have loved to see on TV or a, or a platform, right? And it's so weird, bro, because if, if, if me and you had grabbed the camera and made Man Like Moby and put it on YouTube, it might have been great. It might have, have taken off a lot, but there's a, there's a mentality... That if there's a BBC sticker on the corner, the mm-hmm. type of demographic that I wanted to reach, they feel validated. Like, oh shit, because it's not just my man on the Facebook and the, on the Instagram. You want the BBC's come for him, bro? 
thinking, <laughs> this is real shit now. So it was really important that that little sticker was on the corner in the content that we created. Yeah. Um, and the four helped me to learn. And then after the four went out and, you know, lo and behold, it did reach the kind of demographic of people that I wanted to give a voice to. It permeated beyond that. So it's like John in Kent, whoever the fuck it is, saying sterling work. And I was like, oh, bloody yeah, big man on that, yeah. Amazing work. And it started, you know, it started spreading and people started enjoying it for lots of different reasons, which was amazing. Got to the second run of four and you're learning again, like, oh, let's try and give it more of a narrative. But bro, this, this, this four episode run, looking back on it, was, was perfect for a newcomer as well, you know? Imagine if they'd have slapped six or eight on me. The four thing is great. I think everyone should be thinking in those terms. Think about the good bits and don't churn it out and don't immediately start hating the whole process. That's the other thing is you want, to, you want it to be fun. I agree, bro. And you know one thing you, you'll be able to advise me if you felt the same thing, though, is that when they do give you that four hmm. and you are a new performer, that if it doesn't work, then you've had your chance turn the cycle and then let's get the next one. And the reason why I felt like this, I knew a lot of MCs, so, you know, who were in the music industry. And it felt like if the first single didn't bang, boom, let's get the next black kid. Boom, mm-hmm. let's get the next MC. So that was definitely part of my thought process, which is why I think I really went for it. Like selling an idea to the BBC that I want to be stuck in the back of a van with a far right wing leader in the last episode of a run of, you know, a first show in a comedy. Obviously, I, that shit didn't go down well. Um, and there was a bit of a feeling of like, well, this is on you, you know, <laughs> it's on you guys, Khan. It's going to yeah. be back to Pakistan for you. Like, so, and, and I definitely felt that pressure. But I think that's another big thing for people not to fear, like you just said there, to just give it a go. And if you in your heart of hearts feel it's content that you believe that there is an appetite for, that you feel says something and makes people laugh, then, then let's just do it, isn't it? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes, please. Yep. Yes. Who are the people that you look at in the comedy world and you take inspiration from and you enjoy their stuff? I mean, like from a stand-up perspective, that VCR that used to shag all the time that we talked about, my sister from, I must have been like five six seven something like that uh she was very innocent my sister so this is your older sister my my older sister yeah yeah yeah, shady so you could have put any horrendous filth on in front of her and as long (laughs) as you couldn't physically see it she wouldn't really get what was going on so she sat me down from a very young age i kept watching uh murphy over and over again and what i got from which one delirious yeah bro that and then like because she's daft as fuck she put the next one on as well (laughs) so i was i was sat there just swallowing everything that he was saying, not understanding it, of course, myself, because I was a little kid. He was a huge influence over me. And then as I got older, Four Lions fucking, as a a standout point, it changed my life, bro, in terms of... I always enjoyed comedy and and watching it and Live at Apollo's and Rose. This is Chris Morris's film. Yeah, bro. Like, Chris Morris's Four Lions changed my fucking life. And I remember I was just newly married at the time, and I said to him, Mr. Comlis... Let's go watch this movie. She didn't know what to expect. And then we spent the rest of the movie in stitches, but also looking through a lens that offered a completely different view of who these people were. And, and I remember by the end of it, bro, I, here's what I thought. Yeah, I thought Riz Ahmed wrote... <laughs> directed and did all the things that he did. I thought Kevin Novak 
made all his words upon a spot. And after that movie, I started looking at credits of movies I'd watched my whole life. I know it sounds silly, but a writer writes all their words. A director instructed them what kind of performance. And so that movie changed the game. And I was like, yo, Morris is a fucking bad boy, yeah? Uh, and then I started remembering like odd things, like bits of brass eye that I'd stumbled across when I was younger. Um, obviously, we weren't necessarily the demographic that that show was, was trying to reach or might have thought it would reach. But I remember just from a comedic value thinking, oh, that's funny shit, bro. And then when I showed my mates, even mates who aren't comedy commissars or whatever, they were like, oh, yo, yeah, that fucking brass eye was funny, bro. Yeah, you know what I mean? They understood, they appreciated comedy. And that really changed the game for me. Thinking back, it's like, he mixed heart, reality, and humour in that, just that hour, whatever it was, a two-hour movie, uh, in a way that, for me, was like one of the most perfect examples of that, that I'd ever seen, bro. In terms of, as a comedy fan, are you like, yeah, he's a real G? Or, or are you like, were you still like, I could have done that better? Oh, no. I think he was, he was definitely... Well, the, 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 my, my initial reaction to a lot of things that I end up loving is like, oh, fuck. <laughs> and listen, you are what we call where we're from. Fucking hater, bro. Stop with this hating ass hate ads. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. I've been, I've been writing a book recently and thinking hard about like where all my hang-ups came from. And I think I'm going to blame my dad for all of them. Um, he was very, very critical, very oh. conservative. And... I think a lot of the sort of psychological conflicts that I have come from, on one hand, loving my dad. He was a, a lovely guy in a lot of ways. But on the other hand, sort of absorbing his extremely critical ideas about pretty much all the culture that I loved. You know? was, he, was he critical of your like, career trajectory? Was he... he wasn't critical. Well, I mean, yes, is the short answer. He thought that it was mainly bullshit. But he would say, oh, it goes over my head. It's not for me, you know. What did, what did he enjoy from a comedic point of view? <laughs> not much is the answer. He liked very old-fashioned stuff. He liked, have you ever heard of a guy called Victor Borgia? I've heard that name. Maybe my mum liked him. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, he liked that kind of stuff. But pretty much everything that I was into, he just thought, what the shit is this? And I remember like the young ones, when the young ones came out, the announcer would say on BBC Two, and now it's time for uh, another anarchic slice of student life, courtesy of the young ones. And my dad would stand at the back going, anarchic, God save us. Um, I'm just going to take a drink from my rose gold chilies bottle that is fancy bro yeah you know these bottles right that's how you're moving ads no talk to me what is it they're like um you know reusable water bottles so this is to reduce your plastic water bottle consumption oh yeah yeah but i thought it was like that's a specific like no this is just rose gold by the way i'm not sponsored by chilies i'm i don't have to do a little spot <laughs> for them <laughs> but this is one of the few things in my life that not only works it's fucking amazing like, how many things can you say that about? This thing, right, it's a thermos, basically, I think. So you can put cold water in it, which I did yesterday. It's still cold, even though it's been bouncing around in the bag on my bike in the sun for the last few hours. But it is so rare that actually something like that happens, and I treasure it. And I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if it's like a freak bottle. 
you know, are they all like this? Are they all this good? I can't believe they're all this good. And I just love this fucking bottle. Have you got anything in your life that you just think, holy God, this thing works so well? No, look how well you described that fucking bottle, bro. Now, anything I say is going to sound shit. You really, you really love the shit out of that bottle. <laughs> I feel like I need to add that bottle to my life so I have an equivalent. It doesn't have to be a physical thing. It could be just anything that you use and you just think, wow, this is absolutely working. Bro, honestly has to be the device that I love and hate, which is this fucking mobile phones, bro. Right. These smartphones. And the reason for that is it gives you unlimited access to any shit that you might want mm -hmm. but then also can just distract you with a pair of titties as well it's unbelievable yeah do you know what i mean unbelievable invention i'm what they refer to as a nitty bro i'm an addict uh-huh it's a problem how do What's i break the word the cycle? a nitty a nitty yeah like a full addict bro what do i do what do you do yeah. you've got to re-engage you're in a dangerous position because you're now very busy Yeah. You have many messages coming in at all times. People, all time. People approaching you from all different angles, exciting yeah. opportunities and offers coming in you have to sort through. Yeah. Uh, so there are so many reasons for you to be looking at that. Well, you just have to have that thing of occasionally finding a way that you just leave it behind and switch it off and then break through that barrier of realizing actually life continues, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't course. just grind to a halt if you... Don't immediately answer a text, even if you have people who are absolutely apoplectic if you don't answer a text within three seconds or It's something. very true. I'm too far the other way, maybe. I, people who text me, I hope most of them understand that I might not text back for weeks. <laughs> Literally Stop. weeks. Bro, I mean, on the streets, that's a power play move. <laughs> You're, you're stunting on motherfuckers. That's, 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 bruv, that's a real stunt move, man. I mean, it is rude. It is rude because I don't like it when people do it to me because it does me being an overthinker, as we now know. Yeah. I immediately think, like, what is, what's the problem? I remember when I was trying to get Ramesh Ranganathan on the podcast years ago. I mean, I know Ramesh a little bit, but not well enough to know that he's just not fast at replying to texts. Or did he blank you? For ages, yeah. Initially, it would be like, yeah, cool. Very short reply. He's a busy guy, you know. And then I'd be trying to get back and say, all right, let's nail down the specifics. When are we going to do it? Nothing. And then I'd be start thinking like, what have I done? What have I done? Have I said something wrong? Have I said something weird on social media that he's seen? And now he's angry with me. Oh, fucking hell. My brain's spinning. And then like, you know, a month later, it's like, yeah, cool. See you on no, Tuesday. No, bro, he was stunting on you. Ramesh, <laughs> Ramesh, listen, I know you're going to be listening to this. Fuck you, Ramesh. Ads is my boy, bro. Just don't, don't, don't hold back. You did, you did ads dirty there, Rom. I see you, it's on. <laughs> I love that dude. I worked with him recently. Oh, yeah, what'd you work on? It was a pilot uh, where I played his little brother and I was just so happy because, bro, he's someone that, again, I looked up to. Uh-huh. Um, you know when I was doing all these videos initially? Yeah. I got invited by the BBC, the second time I'd ever done stand-up comedy in my life, to come and do... It was a shit one. It was on a red button or something. But it was still live. It was still filmed. It was still going on TV. Yeah. And the boy was like, yeah, bro, go and do it. It'll be fun. So I did. Second ever stand-up comedy gig was on this platform. I did it, and I remember forwarding it to him on an inbox on Twitter, saying, yo, listen, you're a sick guy and that. Tell me what you think of this thing. And he took the time to reply uh, immediately, Ad. So I mean, like... <laughs> Bro, I mean, I haven't been hot for a long time. <laughs> This week
weekend. Yes. Let's go out. Where? To the laser disco. To the laser disco. Come on this weekend. Yes. Let's actually go out. To the laser disco. To the laser disco. You go to the laser disco. I'm sorry, I can't go. Why can't you go to the laser disco? Cause I'm going to eat biscuits. 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 Tell me about Mindy Kaling's show, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um, Do you say Kaling or Carling? Kaling, black label. <laughs> I prefer that. Let's okay. say Mindy Kaling. Um, <laughs> I think it was supposed to be a limit. Do they call it limited series? Yeah. yeah. On the turn up on things like Hulu. Yeah. I don't know. So essentially, it starts and it finishes, and you're never going to get any more, right? Oh, okay. So that's the that's mini series. Yeah, limited, yeah, limited series, mini series, ah, something like that. So yeah. anyway, basically, it starts and it finishes. Um, and I, ne- <laughs> <laughs> I never, never. that'd be a good pitch for a show. <laughs> I'd never seen it before, bro. Um, the original Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um, I didn't get on that wave. It wasn't my thing. I don't think so. Then when this came through, you surprised me. <laughs> So when this came through, I was like, okay, it's fun. And then she was involved. She's a big name. Mm-hmm. She's done some stuff that I really appreciated. Before. She's a US comic, right? Yeah, she's a US comic. And she was really broke through when she was on the writing team for The American Office. Ah, right. But then she, they, they liked it so much, they were like, oh, you act as well. Let's give it a go. So like, she was helming this project and I got involved and... Hulu is an American show, but it was filming here again, which is perfect for me. Not wanting to leg it very far and stay close to home because mm. back and forth. So I did it and it was fun, bro. You, you just learn how big the machine gets and how there are levels and how much bigger the machine might get if you're ever sat on a set of a Marvel movie one day doing a two minute role. But just how big the machine is comparatively to the little show that we do up in Brum, you know? Mm-hmm. And but there's so much that I learned, like, how unless you're really careful, really pay attention to the process of what's going on camera is the most important thing. Because that shit can get lost in such a big machine sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. Lighting and angles and where's that person and what's going on here. Um, so it's fun and I met some great people. I never, did you watch Game of Thrones? Yeah, yeah. You really enjoy it? I would say that's putting it too strong. <laughs> <laughs> I have moments where I'm very pleasantly distracted from what's going on in the real world. Oh, my God, bro. I, I, um, I'm not passionate about it, but, it, but it's fine. No, because sometimes when I broach that conversation, because never, I, I never saw it. So when, no. I, when I was like, I worked with, I believe her character's name was Miss Sande, Natalie Emmanuel from Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. People like freaking out, like, oh, shit. And she was a great person, super down to earth. And that's, bro, that's a big thing for me. Like, I'd done acting gigs and with the... Uh, quote unquote what people might refer to as like super Hollywood folks mm. um, and for me it's all about vibes bro like it's great I'm really impressed with your your CV and your catalogue and how you were sat ringside when Mike Tyson bit Holyfield's ear off and that chunk of ear went over your head specifically you know them kind of stories bro like <laughs> fuck you man that ear did not fly over your head don't be talking shit to me and then you went into the lobby where Tupac Shakur was shot <laughs> And you witnessed that. But for whatever reason, the FBI didn't choose to call you. Do you know what I mean? Like, are these real stories? Are these you? are real stories that I heard at, like, while I was sitting in a VW camper van filming this thing. It was a fucking very long evening, right? So there was just 
the people on the four wedding set were super nice, down to earth people. There was no Hollywoody, Hollywoody vibes. Yeah. Do you read your reviews? Mm, no. But like, if the people are feeling it on social media, for example, like Twitter, with my like Mobian, if they're feeling it, I take that as uh, as a positive thing. Because I suppose, yeah, there's a lot of insidious shit going on with how people judge each other and you know, cancel culture and all this kind of stuff. However, like, if someone's feeling something, they're not going to lie. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Review, I don't even know if I've really been reviewed that much. What's your feeling about when they review you? Uh, I I mean, it doesn't happen very often. I generally don't do things that are reviewed in that way, like overground things, you know. I wouldn't seek them out, though. No, I would avoid it. Will you internalise it if they're like, didn't really like that? Yeah, I would, yeah. I know. I asked you the question. You, you know, know me well enough now. I know you well enough now. To know that... But why, bro? Like, fuck them, innit? You're doing your thing. <sighs> I've got to get some therapy, is the short answer to it. Do you get therapy? No. Maybe through the spirituality of, like, how I try and... Try! And I must say this, try. Try and live my life. There's a bit of... There's a bit of therapy there. But yeah, no, yeah. like, you don't. Are you a, a, a religious person? A spiritual person? How? Yeah, I think I'm spiritual. Like, I try. Like, I try to just... Take moments and... You're a good Muslim? And pray... Oh, fuck, you know, mate. <laughs> Fuck's sake. <laughs> that should be the perfect response. That should be the answer all in one. <laughs> Bro, look, man, I gotta... I just gotta... I gotta try... <laughs> That's my response for you, Ads. Just want to try now, ain't it? Big up all the imams and them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you want to text your mate and tell him to come in? He can chat with us for a little bit. Oh, he's pissed off. I don't know where he's gone. Wait, let me let me see where he's gone. Did I call him? Yo, bro, Lumbu, listen, I'm here with Adam, yeah? He said the most annoying part of the Pachysaurus video, yeah? <laughs> you're a real talk, and you know I rate ads like that, yeah? He goes, was, it was that fucking buffoon in the background <laughs> asking you all the questions. That and sounds like something I might say, but I didn't say that. <laughs> He sounds very well-spoken. Yeah, he is, bro. <laughs> like, very well-spoken. You've, you've shocked him with your level of uh, education. That's... Yeah, I'm, I'm, like, practically royalty. No, I'm not. Ooh, you like it, bro. <laughs> I was saying that um, you'd be welcome to come and join us, but you're not in the area. No. To be honest, bro, I just finished up ironing my turtleneck. <laughs> yeah, these motherfuckers ironing the turtleneck. <laughs> <laughs> you two should have done this podcast... Why are you ironing the turtleneck? You know what, I'll be honest, I thought I packed a different jumper. I pulled it out and I was like, okay, yeah, well, we're going to have to make it work. All right, fuck off now. You've ruined my image in the public. Get out, say <laughs> bye, bye, bye. Okay, thanks. Hey, bro. See ya. Ironing a fucking turtleneck. What's he man? doing in his turtleneck? Is he going to go out and do some beat poetry later on? <laughs> I don't know what that is and neither does he, so he's definitely not going to be doing beat poetry, bro. <laughs> my God. So, we'll wrap up, but... Before I do so, I've got a couple of gifts for you. Gifts? I mean, don't get too excited. Here is the Adam Buxton podcast mug. Why, thank you, broski. Is that a realistic depiction of your... That's a realistic... Lovely pop? It's... No. Rosie doesn't look like that. I mean, not too far off. And also, I don't sit on a rock and interview Rosie in that way. No, anyway, that's yours. Thank you, bro. For your hot drinks. Do you like hot drinks? Yeah, I'd do a hot drink then. Would you ever own a Kurdish Kangle? <laughs> What's a Kurdish candle? Bro, a Kurdish Kangle is a... Kangle? Kangle, yeah. Not a Kurdish candle. A Kurdish... Kurdish Kangle. 
Thank you, Chris, for offering me a Kurdish candle. Uh, <laughs> a Kurdish candle is a, is a type of dog, bro. Is well, it? I'll, I'll text you afterwards. You, you have a look at this dog. Yeah. Because we, I, uh, Rosie is a uh, Whippet Poodle cross. This Kurdish candle might swallow her. <laughs> I've never heard of a Kurdish candle. Yeah, amazing dog. The other thing I've got... Someone bought me these the other day, and I thought, hmm, maybe I'll get these for Kurds. Booja, well, you tell me. Have a look at this. Booja, booja. Fine champagne truffles. Ads, I want to say at this point, um, you did ask me earlier on, are you a good Muslim, Kurds? And you have ended this podcast by giving me champagne-infused truffles. Thus... <laughs> But it can't, not, is it real champagne? I just it's assume. real fucking champagne, that's, yeah? And you're trying to give a Muslim brother, at the end of your podcast, a gluten and soya-free, well, yet, I, yet I, alcohol-infused... Ah, uh, okay. See, this is the... Okay, listen, yeah? <laughs> Clip this up. Adam Buxton invited a Muslim brother to his podcast and gave him champagne-infused truffles to try and tempt him to the way of the unbelievers. <laughs> not impressed with this, Adam Buxton. I just looked at it and I thought, because it said all over it, dairy-free, organic, gluten and soya-free. I thought, well, there you go. That's yeah, uh, just, just for everyone in the world should just, be Just for future to... reference, bro, there's a, there is another sign called a halal sign, which you can <laughs> find on boxes, which definitely isn't there. Damn it. I didn't think hard enough. That's very offensive and I'm sorry. Just try one. <laughs> Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Welcome back, podcats. That was Guz Khan. Guz, Guz, the Guzzler, Guzzy Bear. I don't know. All I do know is that meeting him for the first time was like receiving a warm hug from an old friend that you haven't seen for many years. It was really a hoot to spend time in his company. I've posted a few links to bits and pieces that we talked about in the description of this podcast. A couple of recommendations for you before we part company today. Shout out for comedian and friend Joanna Neary. She has a new podcast, but it's not just comedians bollocking onto each other in a completely inconsequential way. God, I hate those kinds of podcasts. It is called Wife on Earth. 
and it is a series featuring her character Celia, based on Celia Johnson, perhaps best known for her portrayal of a somewhat emotionally repressed British lady in Brief Encounter. Anyway, Joe's character Celia, who is also an emotionally repressed, uptight housewife from the fictional village of Upper Lowing, has been encouraged to do a book-based podcast to promote the local library in nearby Lower Upping because no one else wants to do it as it's too much of a time commitment. As well as Joanna, the cast includes Anna Crilly, Alistair Kerb and Ben Crompton with guest stars Paul Putner, Michael Legg, Robin Ince and Adam Buxton. Oh, now we see why you're giving it a shout-out. You fucking self-interested guest star plugging twat I'll stop looking at Twitter it's an anarchic, original and charming character comedy written by Joanna Neary and Joseph Nixon and it drops on November the 6th this week a link to more info is in the description of this podcast movies, what have I seen recently Uh, I can't remember the last time I went to the cinema cinema Oh, yes, I can. I went to see Ad Astra a few weeks ago with my children. For some reason, I thought it would be a good idea to take them all to see Ad Astra. I think because it was a 12. So I thought, oh, it'll just be a sort of fun family space film with Brad Pitt. But it's a bit more downbeat than I expected. I didn't read the reviews properly. It's my own fault. And my daughter got quite freaked out by one scene especially involving a very angry space monkey. So we had to leave. (laughs) Or rather, I I had to leave with my daughter. And the boys stayed and watched the rest of it. They said it was good. I was enjoying it. But um, daughter was not impressed by the space monkey. Uh, talking to Guz there about Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy seems to have popped up a lot in my recent conversations with people. His film Dolomite Is My Name is on Netflix, and I watched that the other day. By the way, I'm not obliged by a sponsor to mention any of these. These are just genuine recommendations and things that I've enjoyed. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good, Dolomite Is My Name. It's based on a true story about a guy called Rudy Ray Moore, who was a black exploitation film star. He died in 2008, but his heyday was in the 70s, as far as I'm aware. I hadn't heard of him before, but he had a whole character. I mean, the movie is a fairly, well, relatively faithful account of his rise to fame as a comedian with this character called Dolomite, who would do these raps proto-raps that were largely a string of boasts and insults. A lot of people have said that he was one of the spiritual godfathers of rap. But it's a funny story, and Eddie Murphy's very good in it. It's got a lot of amazingly good music as well, and good music sequences, and it's very uplifting. Like, it's if you want something that is extremely goofy and positive Uh, I would go for that it is a rude film it's not family viewing 
It's, uh, you know, not perfect, but what is? I also saw recently a film called Wild Rose that came out. Did it come out earlier this year or even last year, maybe? But I'd heard that it was good. It was one of those films people kept on saying, oh, man, you should see Wild Rose. Anyway, I finally got to see that. And I really liked it. Directed by Tom Harper, who did the TV adaptation of War and Peace, I think, which was good, as I recall. And he's done Peaky Blinders, written by Nicole Taylor. Fresh out of prison, not Nicole Taylor, this is the plot now. A Scottish woman, a woman, played by Jessie Buckley, juggles her job and two children. She's a children juggler while pursuing her dream of becoming a country music star. But she has to decide whether her dreams should come at the price of her relationship with her children and her responsibilities as a mother and her relationship with her mum, her disapproving mum, who's been looking after the children while she's been in prison, played by Julie Walters. But this film... It's good. I mean, it's a drama and there are lots of moving bits. And she starts off as a relatively unsympathetic, sort of selfish character, I would say. Albeit in a very understandable and relatable way. But she goes through a journey. It's what they call feel good, I believe. But Jessie Buckley, it's one of those performances that you see and you think, okay, here we go bit like well Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bone who else James McAvoy in Starter for Ten Michaela Cole I remember the first time I saw her in Chewing Gum Carrie Mulligan in An Education I'm just saying the name of films with young actors in now anyway Jessie Buckley, who I'd already seen in Chernobyl, and she was in War and Peace as well, and she was in The Thing with Tom Hardy. Uh, Taboo. Don't know if she's in Mirage. It's one of my 480s jokes. Anyway, the thing is that she is required to sing a lot in this film and deliver performances that should convince the audience she has the makings of a star, and she very much does... Like, not only is she a technically talented singer, but she's got genuine, you know, charisma and star quality. And she sort of channels Janis Joplin in some scenes, very convincingly. But in her own way. I'm not saying it's just a straight impression of Janis Joplin, but she has that, that kind of explosive, right on the edge of being out of control way of uh, behaving on stage in some scenes fucking hell it was good anyway so that's what I've been up to as well as trying to finish the book two more months until I have to pay back the advance alright that's enough waffle for this week thank you very much indeed once again to Guz Khan thanks to Seamus Murphy Mitchell as ever for his invaluable production support uh, thank you very much indeed to Annika Meissen for her edit on the conversation in this episode. Rosie, come on, let's head back. Come on, dog. Fly past. It's fly past time. Let's run.
Ah, oh, she's just running alongside me. Me and my Rosie. Listen. I love you. Bye!